And I think that's another lesson I've learned. It's about the edit, not necessarily about what you put in. One thing happened when Tess came in um, and she just looked at it and she pulled half the stuff out. She was like, this place, the beauty of this place is is the lines and the view and the timber. I used the Wensley to put all this stuff that I couldn't fit at home and that is not the answer. It's what you don't include that makes it what it is. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello everyone, welcome to Imprint. I'm very excited to share today's conversation with you. It is with Frances Durham, who you might know of through her property, The Wensley. It is an incredibly beautiful home that is on the surf coast or the surf coast hinterland in an area called Wensleydale. And It is a beautiful property that actually features in my third book, Style, and I very much had the pleasure of being in that space. It was interesting when we were chatting, Francis was talking about the building and you really do have to, of course, we'll put links in the show notes and you can have a look through my book and you will spot the pages that it features in. But it was such an incredible experience to step in that home and that building. It's one thing to, you know, see an image online and think, wow, that looks beautiful, but it was so much even better in real life. So highly encourage you to go and check that out. We talk about her journey to, to creating that project and also some of the lessons that she's learned on her, her own creative career, because she's had quite a prolific career working as a producer for um, TV shows and um, her own range of documentaries and projects. So all the links will be in the show notes, but I hope that you enjoy my conversation today with Francis Durham. Hi, Francis. I'm so excited to have you join the podcast and talk all about your project, The Wensley, because it is such a beautiful one. And um, I'm really interested to hear and share more about that journey with the listeners. But I always like to kind of go back a little further and just learn a little bit about more about you. And I'm always curious, like, how did you end up in this situation where you're doing this kind of massive renovation, this beautiful project um, and all the skills that kind of come into that? So maybe you can just share a little bit about you in terms of your backstory, you know, where you grew up, were you creative as a kid? What were your interests when you were kind of in those um, later years of high school in terms of like thinking about your career and next steps, what you're going to go on to study or not? Can you fill us in a little bit on your story? Oh, thanks, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I can fill you in. Um, uh, I don't know where to start. Uh so I grew up in Melbourne, um, in Victoria, in the inner city, and I 
there's lots of different influences that um, feed into anyone's personal journey. But I think what's really interesting is, um, you know, my name, I was named after my great grandma and coming from quite a conservative family in the way that, um, you know, my, my parents uh, worked really hard and they saved their money. They weren't um, particularly artistic at all. Uh, but my great grandma was, and she was a woman called um, Frankie Derham. Um, she was Francis as well, and she was um, sort of a leading expert in, in children's art. And you know, people talk about what's in the name and um, small things that can influence the way people treat you and uh, what what people. Uh, tip you into essentially. So just being named after my great grandma, I was always um, uh, pushed towards art. Um, and it was almost, I mean, maybe it's genetic, but it's also a little bit by accident, um, sort of honoring my namesake. I was always sent to art classes, or at least this is my perspective as well. I mean, you're a small child, you're always looking around you and you look back on your journey and you have, um, key things that stand out to you and you know I remember going to art class when I was six or seven um and just that then continued through my life and and her um Frankie's interest was really children's art and then of course that sort of snowballed through um junior school and senior school and then I picked up my other interests as well which um you know go hand in hand with art which is sort of drama and I you know I I wasn't very good at concentrating at school and it's only really in this adult life that um and with all the diagnosis of adhd and um people really looking into mental health that you look back and you're like oh maybe i had a few issues with that or maybe i was just had a few authority issues i'm not sure but um and I wasn't very good at concentrating or paying attention. So I spent most of my time um, in the art room or um, helping in drama, producing or acting and that kind of stuff. And then I became really interested in psychology. And I think, um, as you would know yourself, you always find these um, beacons of hope in the way of either teachers or mentors or people who strike a chord with you personally or it can be simple as something that they wear or um just a sentence that they say to you at the right time the right moment and then you know that just opens up a door that you can walk through i just had this amazing psychology teacher mrs moore and um this sounds really horrible but um she's just dripping in gold and i just thought i just love your jewelry like she just had the most incredible layered jewelry and i was like i like you You've got style, you care about yourself, you care about what, um, you know, what, the image that you put out there and I, I can listen to you in class. Whereas I had this maths teacher that had, um, you know, sweat marks under his white shirt and I just sort of looked at you and I looked at him and I said, no, I can't listen to you. And I, it sounds so um, judgmental, but I don't know, there's little things in people's personalities that, um, trigger you and I don't know where those things come from like I don't think it's certainly learned at all because my parents weren't like that but my other grandma on my other side was like that she would I think she would look at someone and go you can't look after yourself how are you meant to look after me I'm not going to learn anything from you so um, 
just, yeah, Mrs. Moore, who was my psychology teacher, I learned a lot from her. And then I basically honed in on art, psychology and drama and took that all the way through year 12. And then I, I guess when you're young, it's really hard to decide what you're going to do and um, society and definitely my family put so much pressure on me in terms of year 12, like seems such a pinnacle. Um, and I don't know if it's becoming a little bit more understood that people go on journeys and they find their place through many means. But for me, university education was really like it. Like my parents' goal was just to get me through school, um, a good score and then a good university education. So quite conservative in that, in that way. And then also, um, you know, yeah. So I, I, I finished year 12 and I thought to myself, what are the three things that I like? Art, psychology and drama. How can I combine these to all the things? So I caught, of course I went and tried out for NIDA and um, BCA and the acting schools, but I didn't really quite understand that there was a whole lot of stuff that you could do besides that around production. Um, all the, all my schoolmates, a lot of them, you know, uh, lawyers or in PR marketing or doctors and achieving incredible things but um, I didn't really as a young woman didn't get exposure to many other industries in terms of um, female role models like there was always construction and development and those career paths but I I was never tipped into that as a um, as a blonde (laughs) as as just a young person um but I guess um you end up finding your way there so I um I studied I I applied to do creative arts at Melbourne Uni which was at the time like a really cool course that incorporated a lot of fine art and um literature and everything like that but the TER score to get into that was so high I couldn't i like I didn't achieve that, but I did um, get a good enough score to get me into arts degree. So I studied, I um, did a double uh, arts degree with a double major in art history and psychology, which were like my two key interests. And then of course I was like involved in all the drama and the plays and all that kind of stuff as well. So um, interior design and um, architecture, I did want to be an architect, but I wasn't very good at maths. Um, and that was sort of the one thing that I wanted to do because I really liked, um, houses and, um, I don't know, I guess I, I grew up around beautiful places in the way that, you know, I was always in an art gallery and my parents dragged me around Europe looking at art for, you know, when I was 13, which is quite a formative, um, age, um, and being exposed to art, um, at a, you know, like a Renaissance level in that really developmental, like key developmental stage, I think I must have had a massive influence on me. Um, And so, yeah, I didn't really find architecture or design until I met my husband, who is a builder. Um, But I'm quite a a discerning person in that I I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Um, I'm, I'm very honest to a fault. It is like my... Um, you know, it's my key fault and my key and my mind, it's my negative and my positive. Um, 
uh, and people can find it quite um, abrasive and other people kind of find it quite refreshing. Um, but I do have to watch my tongue as my opinions are really strong. And I, you know, I've had to learn to have appreciation of, you know, everyone has their own journey and their own style um, and to respect that. Um, and I guess that's come with age and understanding that, you know, you have to work your ass off to achieve anything. So respect other people. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling on no, now. No, 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 it's, it's um, all good. But, yeah, so I studied arts degree. But... <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, I, I, I mean, there's so much um, you've shared already that I'm like, oh, like light bulbs kind of going off, ping, ping, you know, because I think that I love, um, I love your in some ways, like your sensitivity to your, your teachers. Cause I had something very similar of, um, really like you can kind of really tune in, I think. And yeah, it's fascinating particularly because I know you've got children as well. And like, when you see that in your own children as well, like you can sort of pick up like how each child is different and like, you can sometimes see qualities in them that are similar to you. And just that thing of like really latching onto that teacher who you felt like, that sense and I just love what you said that like her sense of style was like a sense of self-respect whereas say with your maths teacher it was like he didn't care he'd almost felt like disempowered in some ways or or whatever and and I can really appreciate that like I just think I I really noticed that as well with people and it's just I mean, for me, a journalist background, like it's really observational. Like I'm just fascinated by people, you know, and, and how, like how they choose to present themselves to the world, how they choose to show up. And I think, yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. And um, yeah, also really interesting that I can really resonate and I'm sure other people can too with that um, time. I think that, um, you know, with parents sort of putting all that pressure on us to kind of say, okay, you know, like you've got to sort of go to university and get that degree and, you know, and not having those representations mm. of like different opportunities or job prospects or whatever and sort of thinking like, well, what on earth do I do? Like I'm interested in these things, but how how do they manifest? So, yeah, I just wanted to flag that because I just, I, I think that was so so good that you share that because I think so many people can relate. So sorry for interrupting, but yeah. So so you went and you you studied. Yeah. Um, so you studied. You did your uh, bachelor of arts, and yeah. then where did that take you? Yep. Um. So I I wanted to just do a gap year, but I went over and did. Um. I'm a I'm a really keen skier and very amateur surfer. So um, I went and did a season over in Whistler where I met my now husband when I was about 21 and I'd failed statistics. Um, like it was just the one thing that you have to get for your psychology degree. So I went over, did a season and I, um, my dad said to me, hey, listen, like I know you still have to do statistics, but I think, you know, you should think about what you want to do next. And doing such a broad and general degree, um, it it just did not prepare me for the workplace or for any kind of job at all. Uh, and I just thought, you know, what am I going to do? And RMIT at that time is like, and still is like the place to prep you for the work. It introduced you to um, the network of people in the industry that you want to get into. And is such a um, influential, you know, tech college in Melbourne. Uh, so I applied to study 
a bachelor in creative advertising at RMIT. And I was fortunate enough um, that my parents were able to support me through um, two degrees. And well, I mean, I worked, I worked my ass off as in like, I'm, I've always had a job since I was 16. And I think this is a really interesting point as well in, in what shapes people and the different influences, um, which I'll come back to that because the jobs, the part-time jobs that I've had have been so influential in my life. Um, I'm a very loyal person. And when I start working for someone or I start doing something, I, I generally stick at it, um, except, you know, intermittently through my life. So, um, but I started, I, I applied to do Crave Advertising at RMIT and I got a call from my dad um, when I was away. He's like, I've just received a letter. Now you've been accepted um, into the course. I'm like, great. Okay, dad. So I think I'm going to defer and, and go away for a gap year. And he said, no, you, no, you won't be doing that. You'll be coming home and doing this degree. Cause at that point I hadn't, um, finished my statistics. Uh, so I actually hadn't got my arts degree under my belt. And he's like, you need to come home. You need to finish it. And I was like, okay. And like, he just, uh, I don't know what it is about firstborns and their fathers. And I have another girlfriend who's the same. They just seem to um, wield some kind of strong influence over you in, unless you like literally run away from home. Um, and I know a few people have done that too. So um, I went home and finished my statistics degree and I said, oh, I better finish my stat stats before I go and study at RMIT. He said, no, no. And it was when HEX was changing to PELS. So there was a big crossover. So I ended up studying at RMIT and Melbourne Uni at the same time. So I was doing two subjects at, at Melbourne Uni and a full course at RMIT. And the first six months of that course were the um, was the first time I hadn't had a job or a part-time job since I was 16. Dad said, listen, like just finish this six months and then you can go back to work. I'll help you through this six months period of time with a bit of pocket money and, and um, just enabled me to actually study. And it's the best, it's the best results I've ever got when I actually sat down and just studied for six months, which I thought was really interesting. But I, um, I did that and then finished that and then got a job as a copywriter um, with a um, friend as an art director. So we marketed ourselves as a copywriter art director team. And um, I left uni sort of after six years of full-time study to get my first job as a 24-year-old in an um, advertising agency on St Kilda Road in Melbourne. And, um, you know, my best friend who's still I'm very close to at the time, um, Ed, we were so green. And, you know, I was the only girl in the creative um, in the in the creative department amongst all these, you know, 30-something men trying to give you guidance um, and teach you stuff and adjust to the workplace and a really big issue for me, well, which I didn't really realise at the time, was I'd gone from, um, you know, working at a shop front, studying at uni, um, being outside, taking public transport, like a very active lifestyle. And I went straight to an office where I felt like I had to be there from anywhere between like 8am or and 10pm at night. So you go from just like a quite an engaging, fulfilling, um, you know, university experience to like a, an oppressive, uh, male-dominated, blokey um, industry. And because I, everyone learns in a different way and I'm someone that learns by mimicking, like I need a model, I need someone to attach myself to and learn from. 
Um, and I just didn't have any female role models in the creative department, which sort of slowly, um, yeah, led to my demise. Basically, I spiraled. Uh, you know, I think that I think I was depressed. Um, I was inside all the time on my computer, and I'm someone that um, is creative in a way of movement. So you know, I need to. I'm walking. I come up with ideas. I'm driving. I come up with ideas. Um, and I'm engaging with other people. And then for the first time, I'm sitting at a desk trying to bash out ideas, you know, with my creative partner. And I found it quite, um, yeah, it was just super difficult. So um, I only lasted 10 months and then I left and um, decided that copywriting wasn't for me. And my partner, Ed, kept working there. Um, and it was really challenging because it was hard for him because I basically said that I'm not interested in doing this. Like this is actually a vortex in here. Um, and then it was really hard for me because I'd spent all this time studying and I, we'd worked so hard to get this job. And I think that's just the biggest um, danger for anyone coming out of university to a full-time job is generally like you're just really going into a world that you've never, ever, um, encountered before and it's just you're at the bottom of the rung again um, and you have to work your ass off to get to a place where you really want to go and it takes a lot of balls and stamina to to do that and you almost have to trick yourself into doing it um, but I just couldn't hack it and then left there got a job that was at the in the GFC um, so in 2008 and I left there and um, got a job as a producer's assistant in a photography studio um, and learnt how to produce photography, which has been a really core skill and has continued to um, help me in no matter what I was doing, along with all the um, skills that I picked up as a copywriter and the idea that anything that you do needs to centre around a core idea. I think, I mean, advertising has its faults and, um, you know, we live in this capitalist society which is, uh, I don't know, driven by people buying things. Um, so I guess I understand how the world works from advertising but I also, from my psychology, um, thanks to old B.F. Skinner um, and Pavlov's dogs, like everyone you know, it's been like a core underpinning of everything for a very long time and, and especially in America. Anyway, I digress. But essentially um, the photography and the advertising skills and the, the, the concept of ideas and how they have to sit right to the core of everything, like even a headline um, has to come back to the thought around the brand and the brand identity and everything like that. Their skills that I picked up, then I've applied to um, the Wensley, um, which, for those of you guys who don't know, is a um, a timber bespoke timber architectural house. But I mean, we we call it a shed because all it is a it's made up of a three bedroom house and a shed linked by a a driveway, um, sort of like it's like a, a archway carport shelter that you drive into uh, and it's just uh, 20 minutes inland from the Great Ocean Road uh, in Victoria um, 
you know, I love it how um, in Byron Bay you say, you know, the Byron Bay hinterland. So I'm like, oh, we're in the surf coast hinterland down here in Victoria, in the Great Ocean Road hinterland. Um, yeah, so um, it sits on 80 acres and has a pretty amazing view um, down to the east where the sun rises and into a valley. Um, and, yeah, my husband built, well, my husband and I built that when my when I was pregnant with my first child who is a little boy coincidentally called Woody. Um, we have a house made of timber and we have a child called That's Woody. so funny. That is correct. <laughs> um, and it's very strange. Um, yeah, so uh, my, I, it's funny, like my husband, Mike, he studied um, construction at RMIT and has – you know, worked in a number of different companies as well, but it's sort of through our partnership um, that I've found uh, interior design and um, sort of the creation of spaces. Um, understanding that I'd actually been interested in that for my whole entire life without really knowing. Um, yeah, it's it's it... and everything that. Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that that can be the experience for so many people that you sort of it's only when you look back in hindsight that you can kind of see these threads that have come together to make you who you are. And it sort of makes it sense where you ended up, because I know that that's certainly been my experience. I, I just want to pick up on something you were saying about um, you worked producing photography. Can you just shine a light on what that actually involves? Because I think that that kind of whole world for people who aren't in it can seem a little bit of, of an enigma, um, you know, in terms of like, well, what do you actually do <laughs> um, when you're involved in production for photography? And then a little bit about um, what you do now is, I guess, like more your day job. And then we'll get into how the Wensley came about. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, it's varied so much now but when I got my first job I actually worked for a classic photography studio in which it was like a warehouse in Cremorne um, and they had a stable of photographers almost like a, a film production company um, but they have a stable of photographers that operate out of a um, like a base so an actual studio with offices so there, I think there were like six or seven photographers um, and we had a range of clients, you know, everyone from, you know, places like Tontine and um, where they make pillows to um, high-end advertising clients. It could be Schweppes or um, oh, so many different things. And, and then you can do fashion or you could be shooting carpet or you can be shooting homewares. And each photographer had a, a specific um look and feel and client base that they attracted and that's why they were under the stable um, of this company and so uh, I was an assistant producer and you know initially just involved making a lot of coffee for a lot of clients but you know they taught me how to quote a job so essentially um, let's take an advertising client for example um, uh, we, I worked with this great photographer, Chris Tovo, who's still really um, incredible. And he, um, one of his greatest clients was Schweppes. And they came in and um, they wanted to 
shoot, I think it was the effervescence campaign where um, uh, there were a series of TV ads and he was employed to do the photography of it and the water, um, he shot on a specific camera that captured everything at a really high frame rate and they blew up uh, like a water balloon um, on just above and on a woman's face and then all this water sort of sprayed up. So essentially we um, quote the job, including the photographer's time, the equipment they used, um, the studio as a hard space and then everything that came along with that. And then there's also like photography usage, um, which I mean any photographer listening would, would know about, but essentially if you've got a really high profile brand using your photography, um, they do it for the life of the advertising campaign, which can range from anywhere from three to six months to a year to two years. And if you're clever, you license it for, you know, six months. And then if they want to continue using the campaign over three years and they pay you every six months to the use of your imagery. Um, uh, and so that's like in a classic advertising sense. And, and it depends where the uh, images are going to go as well. Like if they're going to be plastered all over Australia then um, and on billboards, you're charging more than it would be if it was just point of sale in one store. Um, so it's all scale and it's all based on budget. Um, so that's an example. And then I work with um, one of my best friends, um, Claire Plucan, who her um, photography was more food photography. So she's working for clients that wanted to shoot food and then we'd have a, you know, she would shoot the food, then you'd have a food stylist come in and style the food and then you'd have the lighting set up and the gear. So your job as a producer would be to um, put together the, the quote um, and then make sure it ran to budget, but also um, be a liaison in between the client and the photographer because the client always has a vision about what they want to create, um, but it doesn't necessarily work in reality. So it's all about um, the practical nature of photography and the client's vision of what they wanted to create and massaging that creative process. Uh, so, uh, and also sort of understanding what some people are trying to say almost in code and then interpreting it um, with the photographer because a lot of people, especially in marketing and advertising, don't actually know how to bring their vision to life. So it's just like a slow journey of understanding how, how to create that. And also sometimes what the client wants is just ugly um, or um, bad. And so you have to um, help them improve their vision um uh but you know the funnest is when you get a client's like oh no 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 i know that's ugly that is my brand you know this is what we need to create because i know my market and they do and they're very successful because of it um but yeah so um i guess uh that's the photography side of things and then i um Claire, who I mentioned uh, was shooting a lot of food at the time and homewares and other advertising campaigns, like moving more into lifestyle, but she was at the coffee machine, which was like very cool back in the early thousands to have, you know, work in a warehouse and have a coffee machine. And I was feeling pretty lucky at the time. Um, and she said to me, oh, I'm making a surf film, I'm making a surf film. And having had a job at Surf Diver Ski in Rip Curl since I was 19 and growing up, um, spending all my time down at the beach following surfers around, you know, trying to skateboard myself and sometimes paddle out, I said, okay, well, I mean, if you're making a surf film, this is what I want. I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this. And she's like, well, what? you know, stop 
spouting your opinions at me. Why don't you just come and help me make the surf film? So I um, joined forces with Claire and another Claire from Phillip Island, Claire Gorman, um, who was sort of uh, on the early stages of creating a girl surfing documentary. And once I joined, um, we just, I just thought it had legs and my advertising and my photography production skills slowly sort of taught me how to make film. And I made this girl surfing documentary called first love, which is, you know, 60 minutes or 72 minutes if you include the behind the scenes. Um, and we screened it at Acme. We got approached by, um, well, we screened the first cut at Acme, got approached by, um, a, a company called garage entertainment. And they said, you know, we think this could be really something. So, do you think you could, you know, shape it a bit more and invest a little bit more money in it and make it into, uh, you know, a little bit more of an engaging surf film? And I said, yeah. Um, and then we applied for funding through um, what was then called Film Victoria, but now it's called Screen Vic. Um, and we didn't get the funding, um, maybe because they thought we'd just take their money and go on a surf trip. But um, we ended up making this documentary and it received um, 27 cinemas or output deal with Roadshow. And we did everything from the filming to um, sourcing the music for the soundtrack to, uh, you know, contracting. Um, uh, so we just sort of learnt um, what it was that went into a film and then to the distribution of the film. Um, and at the time it was like quite a little, um, cult hit mainly because it was one of the only girl surf films with a story. Um, and we're at a really grassroots level. Um, and it, and it features sort of three, um, surfers from Phillip Island. One, um, Nikki Van Dyke, who, um, is a quite well-known professional surfer. And then Jess Lang, who runs a surf school and India Payne, who is now a photographer. Um, and it just chronicles their life, um, as sponsored surfers trying to become professional surfers. Uh, so that was good. And that sort of threw me into the film world. Um, and from there I've been freelancing as a producer. So I, you know, when people say, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a producer by day and Airbnb hostess by night. I, um, yeah, I make, um, I produce, well, I, for the last 10 years I've been producing ads and recently I've moved into long form um, working with a woman called Joanna Werner and her Werner Film Productions, which is a company she runs. And um, we have made something called Surviving Summer, which is a, a teen surf series and the first season streaming on Netflix at the moment. And um, we just finished shooting the second season. And I don't know how, but I, I'm somehow... Um, you know, script consultant for the surfing stuff and also um, in the water producing the surf unit and, and co-directing with the incredible cinematographer Rick Lafici, um, the, the water um, elements of the show, which has been really fun and dynamic. Um, we just finished last weekend and now we're, um, I'm back to picking up the pieces of um, home and kids and also Wensleydale, which the Wensley. So yeah, that's sort of my career journey. 
Yeah, I'm so excited that you sh- in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited you shared about those um surf films, and I will will definitely link to those in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to checking them out because I've got a almost ten year old daughter who loves surfing, and yeah, like I think that for for girls surfing, like the I think it's so much different. I mean, I can kind of I relate a little bit to that kind of you know the surfing thing. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager at school and lots of the boys, like they would go and surf and the girls would sit on the beach watching them surf. I like, that was the kind of world that I grew up in. And I just think it's so cool now that like I surf, not very well, but I do surf. (laughs) And, um, and I mean, I enjoy it. Like my whole family surfs and um, particularly my 10 year old daughter loves it. And I just think to have those kind of like role models and even here in Byron, like you go out on any day and at least, at least, if not more of the people surfing are women than men, which I just think is so different to what it was when I was growing up. Like to to even think about going out and surfing, like people would look strangely at you if you wanted to go out surfing as a young woman when I was, when I was younger. So I, I love the fact that, you know, that kind of dynamic has changed and that there are more and more role models out there because surfing is a lot of fun and um, there are so many great benefits to it. Spending time in the ocean. Yeah, spending time in the ocean is one of the greatest pleasures like we have as humans and our relationship with the ocean and what the ocean gives to us. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to The Water People by Lauren Hill, but I'm just obsessed with Lauren and Rasta. And, you know, she starts her podcast off by saying, oh, welcome to planet ocean and i'm like yes it is planet ocean people (laughs) it's so good (laughs) because there's more ocean than earth um yeah and and um as we're learning uh the ocean well we've always known i guess but it's just at the forefront of the media it's like the ocean is such a huge contributor to the environment to the temperature to everything um and you know spending time in it and loving it so much I just can't imagine what the world would would be like if we weren't able to do that or if, um, you know, the and, – and we've had a taste of that. in Bar- I live in a small town called Bowen Heads, um, which is just outside of Geelong um, on, the, on the coast here, and we've had a taste of what it's like when you can't swim, especially through winter with all the rains and the flooding. Like the water ha- has just been horrible. And, I mean, obviously everyone in um, – New South Wales and Northern New South Wales has has experienced that as well, and I, I think everyone around the country with the floods and um, just how insane it is, and how the quality of water is, you know, completely reflective of the quality of your life and your health, um, which is pretty amazing. And then also, uh, you know, what what you live in is completely. Um, it dictates the quality of your life because, you know, if you're not living in the with and around the right materials, it can make you sick. So just how the health of the environment is so linked to your personal health and the community's personal health. Um, so yeah, I'm finding, I mean, all of that, I think we've all known forever, but it's just amazing when, you know, you can write it out in a sentence and it becomes the most important thing that our generations and our children will have to deal with 
yeah yeah especially with the pandemic anyway yes. we're getting a bit deep here <laughs> that's okay but yeah um so you mentioned the ocean and surfing yeah sorry <laughs> um you mentioned earlier that how like your part-time jobs have really informed you know and helped kind of provide this foundation so is that what you're talking about the fact that you worked at those surf shops and then that kind of really you know helped inform creating those documentaries and working in that kind of um topic and industry yeah definitely i think also um i got a job um when i was 16 at a local cafe and furniture store um which is really interesting it's um a really um in melbourne at the time it was a really well-known furniture store it was called herman and herman it was in richmond right next to the um the netball courts and barbara and john herman you know they were one of those pioneering couples that bought back furniture from bali made their own furniture they were you know in cahoots with all the manufacturers and like it was just stunning um the interiors and the colors and what they were doing and then i worked in the small cafe that they um uh like a uh, two women sue and rowena owned and sue um arnold she became like my second mum uh and she was incredible but also incredibly hard working and i think you know i've always seen my parents work really hard but then working at a cafe in a furniture store um you know being surrounded by beautiful things all the time and then being taught how to work really hard by you know one of my greatest role models of my life um and just introduced to all these different people like it was opposite um the road to channel nine so it was on Swan Street in Richmond and SEN was across the road. So Billy Brownless and um, all of these um, football players would come in and get their snacks and then um, anyone that was on radio there and then the writers and anyone else that was freelancing out of Channel 9 would come in and then um, uh, Jeffrey Hattie, who's an um, incredible um, antique dealer in Melbourne, would come in and sit at the end of the table with another antique dealer, Chris, and they would just wax lyrical for hours while we serve them coffee and um, food on every Saturday morning. So, you know, it's really strange where you can look back at one of your first informative jobs and you see everything that you like and love in your life just pop up. You know, I've I've worked in a furniture store. I've worked in food. I've, I've been exposed to some of the most creative antique dealers, you know, in Melbourne and then the writers at Channel 9 and then all the personalities that came in and around that. Um, and then, you know, so she just taught me to work my ass off. Like you, you could not be still. You could not um, do that. But you also had to take interest in all the customers and um, their stories. And also they were full of so much knowledge and, uh, you know, where to go on the weekends and what to do and what were they doing and what were they wearing? You know, someone would walk in with Izzy Miyake and we'd you know, be fawning over the pleats and, you know, just personal style and, um, you know, what each person had and people's tastes was just really celebrated and loved and adored um, by um by sue um who yeah she just was such a big influence and then from there i got a job at um surf dive and ski which which at the time was owned by rip curl and then um i worked on chapel street which um if anyone knows melbourne used to be or maybe it will come back again like a really um it's a retail hub um and i spent all my time at the jam factory going to movies um so surf dive and ski and then rip curl um 
um, I teed up with a really incredible group of um, friends and surfers and I spent a lot of time with them going down to Bell's Beach at Easter and watching the pro and um, selling surf gear to all sorts of people around the world. Um, so, yeah, it was it was fun and then that's what sort of tipped me into making the, um, well, it's what basically made me confident enough and knowledgeable enough about surfing in, in a small way, although I've learned so much more since that time, um, to go and make the surf films. So, yeah, it's sort of strange how um, those first experiences seem to find a way of just permeating your life for the rest of it. And, and you know, it continues on. Like they're all of these things, both surf and design and food um, seem to be, you know, the pillars and advertising. So they seem to be the things that just keep popping up, these themes. Um, you know, everything that I do seems to have a link to one of those things. Just, yeah. yeah. So um, now I, I'm getting, it's making so much more sense how the Wensley has just such a strong, you know, design aesthetic, um, like branding aesthetic, um, you know, all of the things. And mm -hmm. it really, you know, because it kind of, I remember when I first came across it, it's like you have this experience as somebody who's removed from it of like, wow, like this thing is just like popped out of nowhere and it's amazing and it's so well considered and it's like everything about it is so thoughtful and, um, yeah. So tell us then, I mean, you've kind of hinted at obviously with your, with your husband, him being a builder, um, and you've hinted at like how it started, but can you kind of share like, well, what, what was the sort of tipping point to thinking, okay, let's do this project. And it, was it always going to be an Airbnb or was it going to be something else? No, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you sort of um, right from the beginning. So my um, my husband is a kind of guy that just spends a lot of time, um, you know, he's a dreamer, a big dreamer, and he works his ass off. Um, he likes, he's the type of guy that likes to um, look for property late at night. When everyone's scrolling on Instagram, he's scrolling realestate.com. Um, and probably about, um, so in 2012, I was, um, a maid of honor at my girlfriend's wedding and he was so bored he uh, I know I was prepping for the wedding and he was like you know what am I going to do so he just drove around and he sort of found this property uh sort of 45 minutes from Barwon Heads and said oh I'll um I'll just pop down here and have a look and you know the next day we, we go to the wedding he wakes up and he's like oh listen I've just bought this place um I'm like what what and at this stage, like he hadn't proposed or anything like that. And not that that matters at all, but I was like, you know, can't we just nail down a few um, important milestones in our life before you start going by property without consulting me? Anyway, turned out to be the best decision that he'd ever made. Um, someone was subdividing off 80 acres of their land uh, over in Wensleydale, which is just, as I said, um, 20 minutes to half an hour inland from Ares Inlet and Anglesey on the Great Ocean Road. And um, we paid a really good price for it. And because he had a construction company at the time and we had a friend that was an architect, you know, things just evolved. He was 
also doing a lot of demolition and fit outs in um, the CBD of Melbourne. So he was collecting um, timber, um, namely like Oregon and other hardwood from uh, demos he, he was undertaking at work. And he put that aside and then he sort of said eventually, like, whatever we do here, we should just use this timber. You know, it's pretty incredible timber and I've been really lucky to be able to keep it. Um, so we should do something like, oh, okay, cool. Like, didn't really think much of it at the time. And then uh, Nick Byrne, who's the architect that designed our house, he, he the original intent for the house was to make it a shack with just recycled things. And so I was like, oh, yeah, we'll keep it really low key. We'll just get this recycled timber and we'll, we'll go and get recycled doors and we'll, um, you know, just get some old sinks and we'll just knock it together and it'll be somewhere where we can go. It's just like a, a holiday place. And then Mike just got carried away, as he does. Um, and Nick came on board and designed this incredibly um, angular and light-filled architectural um, thing box um and then might just started building it and because um we he managed it and it was through his construction company um it i mean it took a long time because we were so busy doing other things and other jobs had to take priority so it sort of took two or maybe even more years to build and also we were really slow at decision making i was busy producing ads at the time and you know like we have to do this and then i got pregnant and you know, it was busy working. So everything was, it was quite a slow journey. And also because I am so particular and opinionated, like he would come back. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm like, no, I don't like that. Um, and, and so we had to step through things and it sounds, you know, my creative process of working is uh, I'm a responder. So people put stuff in front of me and, you know, I pick it apart and then we work on the, the um solution together whereas but the, the thing that can be quite confronting is and i'm learning how to change this is that i pick it apart before i can put it together so it can be like quite a negative process for the other person it's like i don't like this i don't like this i don't like this like instead of saying oh you know we could do this and be really positive i have to like rule out everything that i don't like and then build it back up but i'm slowly learning how to change that um and so we worked on that um started building i think in like 2015 and finished in 2017 and at that time um mike's construction company was going strong was doing really well in melbourne um and then we decked it out a girlfriend of mine lisa buxton she came and helped me do the interiors she just moved back from new york where she was working for uh, an incredible guy called anthony todd um uh who is a bit of a character with really amazing taste obviously if he's got an interior shop in um, new york uh and so she helped me pull it together because i actually just didn't really know what i was doing um and i, I didn't have the process i think what's really interesting is you need the process to be able to achieve anything and if someone's not teaching you how to do that or giving you instruction then it's really hard to find your way through the forest if someone lays out a pathway and say, all you need to do is this, fill in this spreadsheet, do this mood board um, and figure this out and, uh, you know, workshop it all with your builder and with, um, you know, people who know what they're talking about, then you'll eventually get there. So at least help me do that. 
but Michael's construction company um, went into a voluntary administration. Um, and so the holiday home that we wanted Wensley to be um, had to make money. And so I clicked into gear and I do what I do best, uh, advertise. So, and I produce a photo shoot. I pulled together a team of people who I thought, okay, found Tess Newman Morris, who I love. She was actually a year below me at school and had worked on some ads for me. And I said, oh, hey, Tess, do you reckon you could help me with this? And she's like, yeah, I can. I said, who do you think would be a good photographer for this, knowing that my expertise is more in advertising instead of um, interiors and also understanding that really, which I think is a really interesting difference between advertising and um, editorial photography, is the photographer that you pick has the links to the publications. Um, uh, well, in my experience, and I don't know what your experience is, Natalie, but um, I found that uh, the magazine, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so Tess said Lisa Cohen would be perfect for this. Um, and I said, cool, like, looked at Lisa's work, loved it. And then it's opened another doorway into interior photography for me because I've been really focusing on lifestyle advertising. And then suddenly, like, here I am researching interior photography. And also, I've been using Pinterest for mood boarding for um, uh, Wensley when we built it for ages. Um, but having, being able to create the Wensley and then step back and create the advertising or the, the brand of the Wensley was two really distinctly different experiences, like painfully, um, selecting finishes was very different from stepping back and pulling together a team and saying, Hey, Lisa, Hey, Tess what do you reckon of this place? What are the angles of this place? And it's through this experience with shooting the Wensley for Airbnb and my website that I really discover what my process is about. I cannot finish a job unless it is shot. Like I work in film, I work in photography, and unless there is a frame up where someone's looking through a camera, I cannot finish it because with your eyes you're looking 360 you're looking everywhere so you're seeing everything at once but as soon as you put a camera up and you're looking through a viewfinder you have a frame and you're able to just concentrate on that one space and make that perfect and then the same goes for every single other part of the house and um so Tess said oh look don't don't take this the wrong way because she's like me and it's something that I've picked up from her is a really, really particular, she's just, she's phenomenal. She's so particular about her colours. She's like you, Nat. Like she really, um, like everything you do has a, a real essence and a part of your personality and is really purposeful um, but also a part of a bigger journey that you've been going through as well. So um, she sort of helped she sent me this big email of all these things that she thought I had to get. And I just closed my eyes and clicked my mouse and pressed purchase, 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 purchase. And um, I was like, I'm just going to trust this process. And I'm going to trust that the money that I'm spending now, which I didn't have much of is going to um, work out in the future. And I'm a big believer in doing things really properly. Um, and I have standards that I like to up, hold and I just applied that to um, everything I did in preparation for this photo shoot and then Lisa came and she shot each 
you know, she set up the frames for the house and the conversation that we had at the photo shoot was like, oh, okay, well, we definitely think you should present it like this. So it really felt like I was bringing in a team of people to help workshop the detail of how um, we would then go on to present the Wensley. And I just found that process so therapeutic, but it also gave me so much confidence in what Michael and I created because I'm so critical and a quite a cynical person. I, you know, I'd been, Michael and I had been sitting there in our own little bubble going, oh, like this detail's wrong, this detail's wrong. You get caught up in, in what hasn't gone to plan. But when you have someone else come and look at the place and be positive and say, hey, listen, this is great. This is great. This is great. It just, it gives you new life. Um, so we shot that and then, um, country style did a, like a feature on the place. And then from there, Lisa had the rights for the photography and her agent got it into, you know, Mexico AD, like sort of went everywhere. And then, um, that then generated PR from a, a perspective. And I was able to establish a website, have it on Airbnb. I had it on stays for a while, but um, I've forgotten my password and I can't get back in. Um, I know, it's so simple. It's on Ripper Ride. And then just the um, the different blogs and the Instagram and, um, you know, being included in your book as well, uh, it just all builds to what it is now. But what I found really interesting, and, I mean, your experience with Instagram is, um, quite similar, I think, as I found Instagram was like, uh, yeah, it's an advertising space for me. Uh, for a lot of people, it's where they post what they do in their life and defines their identity. But for me, it was a billboard. And um, I just, I had this set of photographs that I really loved and I've, um, I've just put them all on there. And then everyone else comes and shoots it and then I put those on there and then I just take little snippets of what we're doing. And, but I guess what um, people think I'm really good at PR and people think I'm really good at promoting myself, but I'm actually not that good. I'm good at promoting something else that I believe in, that I have faith in, that you, that you know is a really good product. Um, and, and that's what I've just done with the Wensley basically. And then people stay there and a lot of it's a great location for photo shoots as well so a lot of brands have shot there and that's been a key um driver in my um yeah in keep, keeping it alive and me alive yeah my husband alive <laughs> like you know all this energy <laughs> yeah all this energy and time and um uh dedication that we put into this place has then um fed us in return so it's definitely been a project that's um kept us alive on many fronts yeah um which has been really good i think um, everyone i think what you say about that process of really getting a professional team involved getting professional photography how that then opened the doors for publicity i think that that's a part of the equation that so many people who have airbnbs overlook you know it's like or, you know, obviously there's time and effort put into the design process and getting it up and running. But if you miss that point, you know, of getting the right team involved and if you like kind of scrimp and scrape on that, I feel like 
it's such a missed opportunity because like you say, like you've been using all this imagery, it's opened other doors that wouldn't have been possible perhaps otherwise if you hadn't invested in that team. And, um, you know, I'm really familiar with both Tess and Lisa and their work and, you know, they do amazing, beautiful work. So I think that, yeah, anyone who has an Airbnb out there should definitely, you know, invest in that kind of photography because I just think it will pay you back time and time again. Um, what are some of like, as an actual host, what are some of the big lessons that you've learned of running an Airbnb that might help others who are thinking about it or, um, you know, they've got one and, you know, like what, what do you think has provided value or got people coming back or, you know, getting those good reviews um, all of that. What, what were some of the things you could think of? Mm. Um, it's obviously a number of different things, but, um, firstly, the outlook of the Wensley is just a pretty remarkable and the materials that it's built with is, um, uh, they they change the environment that you're in. So when you go to the Wensley, it's actually quite a different feeling than going to another Airbnb. Um, so I think we were really, I shouldn't say lucky, but we worked really hard to create that um, for ourselves because what I think that's probably the biggest thing is like, would you want to be here? Would you want to be in this Airbnb? Is it good enough for you? If it's not good enough for you, it's not good enough for the other people. Um, so I think that's a philosophy that I've um, gone with and I find really frustrating when I go on holidays renting anywhere. Um, I have everything that I would ever want for in that kitchen. You know, I've got a rice cooker, I've got a wok, I've got a pizza stone, I've got a kitchen aid, um, I've got um, wooden spoons coming out, every, every artifice. I've got, um, you know, cookie cutter things, rolling pins, like everything. I've got, you know, four different types of coffee um, mugs. I just, I want to be able to go there and have everything I need. Um, so, that's probably my biggest piece of advice. And, you know, at the moment, I'm, I mean, I've never really been into candles. Like I, I'm, I'm not into throw pillows at all. So like my advice to other people is that they are crap. <laughs> Stop using throw pillows. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry if you love throw pillows, Emily, but like no, no, I no. just find if they end up on no, the floor. No, 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 I'm completely so insane. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Even in my own home, I'm like, why have something on your bed that's just for decoration? I just don't get it. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's just more crap. And I think that's another lesson I've learned. Um, uh, it's about the edit, not necessarily about what you put in. One thing happened when Tess came in um, and she just looked at it and she pulled half the stuff out. She was like, this place, the beauty of this place is is the lines and the view and the timber. And she just, you think, you don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this. And then every frame that Lisa and her set up, they just actually pulled so much stuff out. Because, uh, you know, I used the Wensley to put all this stuff that I couldn't fit at home. Um, and that is not the answer. 
it's what you don't include that makes it what it is. Um, so yeah, that old age old principle, less is more. Uh, and that was something really, um, important to think of, but also like, I just think, um, don't, I say don't sweat the small stuff, but I think you start off with an Airbnb and you throw all your energy into it. Um, and I would be there before every guest checked in. I was like paranoid about how the beds were made. I just wanted every detail to be incredible. And then at some point I got busy doing something else and I just couldn't make it and everything was okay. You know, you set the rules, you work really hard to make sure that everything's a certain way. And then you have to trust that it's okay. And that some of the minor details, like if, if the bed is just not made exactly how you like it, the linen is still the best linen that you've, you've selected and the people who are sleeping in that will really enjoy it. So that's a positive, but um, you have to do everything you can to make it amazing initially. And it's all about your own personal taste. And if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for someone else. And then it's like, okay, let the baby grow up. Let it mature to be itself. You cannot helicopter parent it too much um because it just takes all your time up and you have no other time for other projects which in the end is really what we all want to do right um more stuff (laughs) but yeah more meaningful stuff i should say um can i just ask you on that just like do you have like a style guide for your cleaners in terms of what it looks like in terms of you know how you like the beds to be made um you know, that kind of thing. Cause obviously I realized you probably do that the yeah, first time. I did. And then, you know, if they get other people on board helping them, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily get passed on the message and all of those kind of things. I'm just wondering from a practical point of view, how do you kind of get that vision across to them? Manage it. Yeah. So um, I do, I did start off with photos of how I wanted um, it to be done. And then uh, like you say, they onboard new staff and um, it just gets lost in translation. So you, but also you've got to give your team that help manage it ownership over it as well. And um, Christy, who is my sort of head cleaner, she's like, Brian, like you can't store this stuff here. You've got to put it here. I'm like, it's a great idea. I didn't even think of that. Like, you know, there they bring other ideas and other things to the table. But there's a couple of things I'm really particular about and it's like how the towels are presented um, uh, and also the coffee table. And then um, I just think the key is not having too much stuff to, for people to move around basically, which, which people do all the time. Um, you know, with lots of photo shoots there, people just move stuff and you have to go there and put it back. Yeah, um, I did start off with photos. I think I've let go of the beds a little bit. Um, I'm like a really, I love um, this brand called Actal. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Actal or Hotelier Range, but it's the sheets. It's the uh, fitted sheets and the under sheets. And then I have like um, linen, doona covers. And I just figure as long as it feels really good to sleep in the bed and 
what you've got on your bed is really um, high quality. Like I, I have proper down donors. Like we live in Victoria and I'm not buying my stuff at Kmart. I'm, some of my plates are at Kmart because I know where you have to save, but like sleeping is the greatest gift. And I think if you skimp on the stuff in the bed, um, it is so, it just shows um, in people's sleep, in the way that they sweat overnight, you have to have really high quality breathable products. So, you know, that's my other piece of advice is like linen is key and not just good looking linen, actually good quality linen that not only is can launder repeatedly after a long period of time, but is, um, yeah, great wear and tear and really comfortable that you don't sweat all night in, you know, because that's one way to ruin your sleep. Um, but what was your question, Natalie? What was it again? Oh, advice. Yeah. Cleaners yeah. and, and, um, keeping it. Yeah. So what, what, yeah, um, what brand of start. linen do you use? I'm sure people are curious to know. Uh, it's actually a mishmash. It's a mishmash at the moment because I, um, so I use Actal sheets, which are, I think, um, cotton. And then I have, um, linen, I've got both Sheridan and Adairs at the moment and they've lasted so well, but I'm about to collaborate with a brand and redo all the linen, um, I think. And, um, that would be, that'll be really cool. Um, but I've got, I've got restoration hardware, uh, linen on my, uh, in the loft. Cause what I think is really interesting. And I don't know if you think this as well. Like I feel like the linen games changed so much over the last five years. Like I think before, like when I was purchasing linen for, um, here, like companies like bed threads and, um, keep and co and all these other amazing, um, like society of wonders, all of that kind of stuff. They were in the early infancy or I felt, or maybe I'm just more exposed to it. Like I really wasn't in interiors before I started this project. So my knowledge of that was really just passed from my mum. Like, and I grew up with Sheridan Linen. I think most of, most um, of us did. what you can get at Maya. <laughs> yeah. In Australia, most of us grew up with Sheridan Linen. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's. Yeah. And the market's just changed yeah. so much. I think it's a really interesting point as well that you say about doing collaboration, because again, I think people don't appreciate is that when you invest in quality photography, then brands are actually more likely to work with you because you've got kind of got like this elevated position with your own brand. And there's just, there's so much follow through and those kind of collaborations can save you a huge amount of money if you're trying to refresh your spaces as well. And there's, there's all sorts of benefits, but um, yeah, I think, and also I just want to pick up on what you said about like the types of things that you have in your kitchen and you know, that you've really stocked it well in terms of like KitchenAid and, and all of those kind of um, accessories and appliances. And I think a big part of your place is, is really tuning in to like 
who are the types of guests that are coming to your spaces? And because yours is a more mm. of a remote location, so you really, it's almost like a type of entertainment in a way, isn't it? Because if, you're, if you've got an Airbnb in the inner city, people are perhaps more likely to go out for dinner. Um, you know, maybe they're not going to be spending as much time in the Airbnb during the daytime, whereas yours is more like a destination Airbnb. And when you've got a destination Airbnb, then you really want to make sure you've got things that, you know, people are into cooking, that they've got all the things they need for cooking. You know, if they want to go for for, you know, not just walks, but, you know, they want to spend time outdoors and, and do those kind of things mm. that you've got the, you're kitted out to help them have the best kind of experience in their type of space. So I think that's, yeah, really important to kind of acknowledge and, and to share. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the case. People and yeah, you don't, I think when you go there, um, people, mistake it from the photos as just a place that they want to be and take photos but then when they get there and they've planned all of these things um in the surrounding area like i'll oh, we'll go on a winery tour we'll go down and do this and do this and what happens when you arrive is you actually just don't want to leave so my 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 advice to people is it's really a place that you is truly there to unwind and to be with friends and family you take everything that you need and you just cook up a storm you go for walks and 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 you really relax like i just don't think we know how to relax these days um yeah we've lost it like the phone has just taken it away yeah yeah basically i just want to ask you before I, um yeah before yeah. i get onto the last kind of couple of questions that i ask everybody at the end of the podcast i just want to ask you um, cause I do think it's an interesting to get an insight on this. What do you find is like your most common guest? Like, is it sort of, um, you know, like people celebrating special big number birthdays, for instance, like having a 40th with a couple of good friends or are people going there and, um, I don't know, like, cause obviously it's a big, it's a big place that can accommodate a lot of different people. Like, do you think that helps you with bookings in terms of thinking about, you know, who are the types of guests that can come? How can you kind of get those regular bookings or is it more like just a fam, like a single family, or does it tend to be more like two families coming or like the parents and their, you know, their children, like grown up. It's grown just up. sort of everything yeah. that you've just yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's everything you just said. Um, it's interesting the market's evolved because obviously um, I started out and I priced it, um, you know, much more affordably than it is priced now. Um, I think it's a fine balance of how you price things and um, what kind of um, people that attracts. And I think it's important um, to price some people out of the market um, and, and then it's important to not price other people out of the market because other, you, you become unattainable. So, um, initially it started out as a place where people who, um, appreciated good design, but as the publicity has increased, um, it's like you said, special number birthdays, um, 40th, 50th, 60th with 10 people or less um bridal parties um people who are getting married nearby and they want to uh, have dinner with their girlfriends the night before and then the night of the wedding stay with their husband um elopements 10 people or less elopements are really great um uh clients uh you know they come they do everything that other 
guests would do, except with just a little bit more footprint with, you know, flowers and makeup and photography and that kind of thing. Um, and then, like you said, two families, like it's something that a lot of people can't afford by themselves. So they need to have like four working people um, pay for it. And then, and then their kids as well. And the kids just all bunk in together. Um, so it's the perfect escape for two families really. Um, and then um, two families of five with the kids sharing beds upstairs. Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, like I said before, photo shoots have been a huge, um, a huge income and I am amazed like coming from uh, a producerial background, I'm amazed that people are still shooting there. Um, because I think to myself, oh, is this place done? Like it is so seen like everywhere. <laughs> but um it's hard to find a great place to shoot uh with that ticks all the boxes for both your brand and the vision that you have for that season's campaign so i think um they've been my key clients and will continue to be i'd love to be able to um host like 20 or 30 people events but i need a permit um and the council's are pretty ruthless and like it's all about the amount of energy i have to deal with the permitting process and the amount of money and the neighbors and the complaints like i just you know you have to be really ready to go to war to get what you want um with the council and um and your community and i'm just not there yet but we'll probably get there We've got a big shed out there that um, would be really good to turn into an event space. Either that, or we're going to have to like make it into a whole nother house or make it a huge, like, but just depends. Yeah. See what evolves, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you, mm. before I get into those last questions, I mean, do you have the itch to kind of do, you know, another t similar type of property, but somewhere else or um, are you? Oh, we are, uh -huh. Natalie. Yeah. sneak peek exclusive <laughs> <laughs> can you share yeah. well it's uh, yeah it can but like it's sort of really in early stages we bought um a place that is more commonly known as duralinga which is an old wildlife sanctuary here on the edge of barwon heads it's um five acres and the woman who sold it to us um she sold us the land, she didn't sell us the business. So she's taken all the animals and it has been like, she was an incredible um, member of the community and also gave back a lot to underprivileged or um, sick people, disabled people. And, um, you know, the animals there were a form of therapy and the work that was done there was a form of um, rehabilitation. So um, it will be a pretty hard act to follow, but, uh the place was pretty run down and we've spent the last year cleaning it up um we're about to start the process with council um we're looking at more we want to return the land to its agricultural use um so we've cleared the land mike's been screening the soil like the top two or three inches of soil to remove the rubbish like the amount of rubbish you know, there was just so much stuff. You know, we had to remove asbestos buildings and there's glass and nails and just like, you know, you, 
you really have to take care of the land. And so we've spent the last, since July last year, clearing the property and prepping it so that we can um, do some biodynamic farming. We're going to have to run a business there. But, um, we've got quite a active community here at Bowen Heads and, um, you know, it is quite daunting uh, in the sense we have to go and have like a meeting with council and see what we're able to do as a business. Like I'm hoping some sort of small form accommodation, but quite boutique and very immersed in nature um, uh, with, with nature basically forming the core idea and philosophy around everything we do. I've just been so inspired by all the seaweed farms and um, everything that everyone's doing. And like, you know, I said to Mike, we just need to, to do something that is actually good. And how do we actually do that? You know, you're in construction and development and I'm in like advertising and film. <laughs> how do we do something? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we, we'll work our way through that. Um, but the idea is to build the dream house, which is what Wensleydale was as well before it became the second property, build the dream house and then um, a business to facilitate the um the property in the sense that like you know just can't come out of our hip pocket um it needs to pay for itself so w whether that's accommodation or um yeah i'm not sure well, well hopefully at a minimum some accommodation yeah interesting so we'll just see what well, are you going to document yeah. the process or mm -hmm. you don't know it's too early to say just yet well, I've started a little bit, like I've got a lot of footage and I've got a few um, cameramen friends who've done some aerials, a um, bit of fly through, drone work, like there's lots of photos. I did send a message to, um, oh my God, I had a mental blank of the show. What's it called? Grand Designs? Uh, no? Yes. I did send a message to Grand Designs. I'm like, how do I get into touch with the producers of Grand Designs? I'm just letting you know that we've doing this property. Yeah. Hello, people from Grand Designs, <laughs> if you're watching, I'm not sure if you are listening to Nat's podcast. I'm not sure if you're interested in coming and talking to me, but yes. Um, yeah, we'll see. So maybe, but um, I'm definitely going to start an Instagram um, or a blog or something like that just to journal the process. Um, but Sort of just a matter of time. Yeah, yeah very exciting. Mm. Um, what springs to mind, and I don't know if this is completely unrelated, and I'm just brainstorming here with you, but uh, are you familiar with the agrarian kitchen in Tasmania? Look at no, look at. I will look it up now. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Um, no, I mean it's. I I um it was a. I I don't know if he was originally from Sydney, but he was a chef, a food writer. I can't think of his name. I used to read his columns. Oh, yes. In the Sydney Morning Herald all the time, and then he moved to Tasmania, and he created this thing called the Agrarian Kitchen, and it's where you can do like a cooking school, and it's like all these. It's got cookbooks and all these things. Anyway, just throwing that into the conversation yeah, for you. <laughs> Um, anyway, we can talk about Thank that. You. Okay. Thank you very much. This is divine. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I'm looking at the website now. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, I yeah, I get very excited about these things. So definitely I hope that you um, you journal it and, uh, you know, like share it on Instagram or, or whatever. Um, and uh, very exciting. So we can chat later if you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I yes. get very, very excited about these things. So I, I, I'm very much a visionary. Like I can just see things in an instant. And that is my 
like as soon as you started describing it like that's the first thing that came to my mind I was like oh that could be like something like that so but you know obviously yeah, that's pretty spot your, on your take on it <laughs> um anyway I've definitely I, I've kept up with a lot of your time I better um get around to the last little round of questions that I always ask everyone because I think these provide an, it's an interesting insight into you know the interviewee guests so the first one is which five words best describe you? And after listening to you, I think I could almost say this, but I'm curious to hear what you're going to say about which five words. Maybe we can, <laughs> you show me yours and I'll show you mine. Um, gosh. Okay. So I'm a pretty passionate person. I've got uh, passion, energy. Um, I can be fun. Um sort of passion energy fun two more words i need that <laughs> sorry i didn't prepare no, for no, these no, questions no. that's all good i mean um you're, <laughs> what are your two uh, other yeah, words well, i mean i would say that you're um you're very honest which i think is really commendable mm. i i always appreciate that in a person when like what they, what you see is what you get and what they say is like what they feel. Like, I, I feel like then you really know where someone stands. And I always value that in people when people are really honest. I don't, I don't love when people kind of play games a little bit with like, you're not quite sure where yeah. you sit or whatever. So I know you said that some people can see that as like quite brutal. And sometimes I can be a bit like that with my construct, my, my feedback to my husband on ideas. I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just can be very blunt, but I love how everyone's calling it feedback. <laughs> feedback. I love it. It's my favorite word. I'm just giving you some feedback, Mike. Um, That's good. And, yeah. Right, I mean, hardworking. You're, you're clearly, you've said several times that you, um, yeah. you know, like that's something that you've been taught and that's something that you do. And, um, and that's certainly something that resonates with me. I mean, I, yeah, I, that's definitely part of my DNA. And um, yeah, so I, I can see that in you. So anyway, we'll add that to yeah, the mix. Dedicated. Yeah, dedicated. There you go. <laughs> What's the, Thanks. that's okay. <laughs> Couldn't think of anyone. <laughs> Glad we could workshop that too. <laughs> um, okay. What's the uh, best lesson you've learned? Thanks. Best life lesson. One of them. Um, it's 99% survival. So I just think it's basically don't stop, never give up. Um, if you fall, get back up and try the same thing again and try and not be too embarrassed about it. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, yeah, basically just keep going. Yeah. Don't never say die. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think what you were sharing about sort of working in the advertising industry, a very male dominated industry and um, you know, what could be quite brutal. And I think that you kind of, you have to pick yourself up quickly in those kind of environments and just keep going and, you know, keep moving forward. And um, yeah, I, I had a sort of similar experience. In, it's yeah, hard though, in because like I look, you know, which is, was very male dominated when I started. Oh, really? Yeah. Do tell. Oh, no, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other podcast. But, but yeah, yeah, you know, that, that kind of thing of, um, yeah, you sort of, you just have to, it's not about you. It's about getting the work done. Yes. And that's actually another huge life lesson is like in the end, 
I, I mean, and I still do, I take everything so personally. And I think as a passionate person, um, you naturally engage with any subject matter that you do on a very personal level. However, um, in this commercial capitalist driven world, people just want you arrive, want you to arrive and do your job and leave. Like as a, you know, I'm a small business, um, but as someone that also engages different people to do different jobs, I, I do want to be their friend, but I just want them to rock up, do their job and leave. And I think that is, if you take that away um, and realize that that's also what people want of you, it becomes much easier, um, obviously more transactional and, you know, life is so much more than just a transaction and you've obviously got to find meaning and, and purpose in everything you do. Well, I do at least. Um, but, you know, in order to survive, you do have to be like, okay, this is just a job and I shouldn't care that much about it. Um, and sometimes that helps you do a better job of it. Um, when you are less af afraid, you remove that fear element of it. Yeah. And just getting out yeah. of it. And also another good lesson is, no, 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 I was just saying, getting out of your own head about it as well sometimes. I mean, I think it's important to have that interaction, but you can overthink things and, you know, when you focus on the work in that sense, Definitely. then it's like, okay, let's just focus on that. Let's get out of my head <laughs> and just focus on what's at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Getting out of your head, that's a huge one. And especially for creatives because everything's so personal and derived from, and you know, some sort of personal insight. So yeah, getting out of your head is, is a big one. And also understanding that everything is on the other side of fear. Yeah. I worked on this great documentary with two, um, skiers, Nat and Anna Siegel, it's called finding the line and they sort of researched, um, fear in general and spoke to a, a whole lot of, um, experts about, you know, at what point do you push yourself and then tip over the edge? Um, and uh just you there's two sort of different versions you can either be too scared to try or you can push yourself too far that you injure yourself in a way and and that's sort of a metaphor for anything you know injury can be you know failure i guess um and and redefining the term failure basically if it's failure is a good thing yeah, it's, it's essential. Okay. It's kind of like, that's how you learn, isn't it? So, um, yeah. What's, yeah. what's been your proudest achievement? My kids, basically. I think, um, it has given me great perspective. I was someone that over analyzed, um, was quite anxious, um, was in my head way too much. Um, I think as a young person, we have so much time on our hands and then you become a mother and you realize, um, that you just have to get quicker at things and it gets you out of your head. So on one hand, um, I've helped them, but they've helped me like purely selfishly, like they've helped me become a better person. Um, yeah, basically. What about you now? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm sure you've talked about your greatest achievement before. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. I mean, as soon as you say that, like, I, I just, 
first of all, I feel a pang of guilt because that's probably not the first thing that comes to my mind because I feel so like I could do so much better as a mother. <laughs> I feel so. <laughs> but then like we just had this event. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, always do better. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we we just had this event here yesterday, like a big social gathering of friends. And and I was just blown away by my kids that they just kept saying, okay, mom, what can I do to help? You know, in that prep before everyone's coming and the morning of, and like every single one, I've got four children, every single one. Okay, mom, I've done that. What can I do now? What can I do to help? And I was just like, oh my gosh, like this, I was just blown away, but I don't take credit for that. Like, you know what I mean? Like everything I'm like, that's them, you know? <laughs> but I mean, hopefully we've had a hand in that, but yeah, it's- um... No, it's you. <laughs> but anyway, so um, yeah. Yeah, it's the way you brought them up and I can't believe you have four. I've only got two. And like four is just like a huge achievement. I just don't know how you've managed to squeeze that all in with your like best-selling novels, your blog, your Instagram, your business, masterclasses. Like, do you sleep? <laughs> um, I, I definitely went through periods of not sleeping much, but but no, no, I'm, it's it's on the hand now. <laughs> um, but it gets easier as they get older, Good. that's for sure. Um, and particularly when they help. So that's that's like they're my new mini team. <laughs> um, what's been your best decision? That's good. Uh, to move to the coast. Um, I We are COVID refugees. Like I grew up holidaying down here at Bowen Heads, but um, when Mike's business fell over, we um, had to tie up a whole lot of loose ends in Melbourne. Um, and then COVID hit and we'd been thinking about moving and sort of starting again somewhere else, but until COVID hit, it really just, it really hadn't happened. And then suddenly we were, um, on our way to a holiday and I just said, we're not, we're not going back. Like they're going to lock us down. Like we'd already lived through one lockdown. We spent, we were obviously we were so lucky, like, um, luck and, you know, we worked our asses off. Like we lived at Wensleydale a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, moving coastally has been the biggest um, change in my life for the better in every single way. I think being part of a smaller community is what I needed um, and what my family needed to ride out COVID and you know, a bankruptcy essentially, um, walking every day, swimming every day, surfing. Um, it is something really familial to me because I grew up, you know, when you're a teenager and if you go to school close to where you live, you live a similar kind of lifestyle. You walk home from school, you pass the shops on the way home from school, you see other people from other schools, other cute you know, boys or um, girls and you make friends. And it's it's something that I have been missing in my life because I was so busy running all over Melbourne trying to catch up with all the different people I've met in my, across the years uh, instead of living in a community. And I think COVID really helped um, push me to do that. You know, and I live in a town where there's one road in and there's one road out. Um, and in COVID, like we were stuck and it was amazing. Basically, I felt like a teenager again. And yeah, I can only bring back semi good memories for everyone. I'm not sure. 
Yeah. No, that's good. Mm. Um, who inspires you? Um, everyone. <laughs> I, I, uh, to my detriment, um, I always look left and I always look right. And I think, um, you know, I think I'm getting to a period of my life where I just need to look ahead. But so many people, um, I was, oh, I was really inspired by one of my teachers, um, Stan Johnson, or, you know, he's a guy named Stan Lee, and he got me into blogging and Twitter in 2007 or six even. And I, I started my own blog and learned how to write properly and learn how to express myself and learn how to formulate an idea. So I found him really inspiring. And then, you know, I find the next mentor really inspiring and I find my grandma really inspiring and my mom annoys the crap out of me, but sometimes she's inspiring and sometimes my dad's inspiring. And sometimes my husband's inspiring and my girlfriends are all inspiring and you're inspiring and nature is inspiring too. great basically but also writing i think quotes i find quotes inspiring yeah great what about everything uh, yes no it's good it's good to be alive to the world um what are you passionate about um i'm passionate about learning i guess um i think always evolving and um affecting change no matter in what context or form so you know i think anything you do should have purpose and have a positive impact so the films that i've made have had purpose you know it inspires other women generally it seems to be quite female focused i think because i found myself in such a male-dominated industry i think i want to give other women the confidence to go out and achieve what they want from whatever age that they want to do it and um, to believe in themselves to do that. And then most of my um, things, anything I create or anything I do tends to have that as a a little ball of um, glowing ball of energy at the heart of it. That and then now with what's happening with the environment, it's it's just about um, health and um how we can cultivate our environment to be healthier yeah well it sounds like maybe your next project can work towards all those those things as well so which will be exciting (laughs) see i come from an ideas background too so everything for me is like what's the core idea here i magazines all of the things so yes exactly (laughs) and that's why i love your emails (laughs) oh thank you you know like when you write your emails as well um and you say you know you your thought process about you know and i was thinking about this and you know this is important and this is important and yeah it's it's everything well thank you it's like oh so <laughs> it's always nice to hear that kind of feedback um what dream do you still oh yeah no i read oh. them. <laughs> <laughs> oh good um what dream do you still want to fulfill Oh, so many. Um, I want to, on one hand, I want to live a quiet, peaceful life. But on the other hand, I want to make an award-winning TV series or a few of them. 
um, I want to write a book. Um, well, I should say, or I want to, I want to write a series of books and, um, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing an art exhibition at some point. I don't know. They're all the three things that are always floating around in my head. Um, but yeah, and I want to help my husband achieve his dreams and help my kids achieve theirs. Great. That's a good list. Um, what, I'm curious, what kind yeah. of series of books, like what kind of subject matter sort of is whispering to you? Oh, uh, well, um, there's always surfing, <laughs> female orientated stuff. Oh, I've got a, um, a great concept for a TV series that I'm going to try and focus on getting up this year. Um, and then, yeah, they're always very female driven, um, and insightful things. I can't really no, say no, too much no, more no. because, you know, All good. someone's probably brainstorming the exact same thing across the other side of the world. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, I mean, I could, I, I, I could definitely see mm. your new project as a TV series. So just throwing that into the mix. <laughs> Yes, it's definitely on the radar. Um, what are you reading? What what books do you like to have on your bedside table or on your coffee table? Um, so I'm just reading um, Mouse by uh, Art Spiegelman. Um, it is a book that a girlfriend had handed to me and it's pretty remarkable. I could highly recommend it. It's... Um, um, Art's father was a Holocaust survivor and he's chronicled his story in comic form um, and it is insane, um, just incredible. It's done through a series of conversations with his father but he's, um, yeah, chronicled the interviews um, between him and his dad so they're the two characters and then it jumps back and forth in time over the um war um that, that's really good um my reading list is a combination of what people give me and what people recommend um i want to read a girlfriend sent me a photo of a book called all my mothers um which looks incredible i think it's by someone called leanne someone um that looks amazing so after i finish mouse i will um probably try and read that um and I also I just am obsessed with James Clear I don't know if you've read Atomic yeah, Habits brilliant. have you ever come across yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah. must read it like um, once a year I can't it's it's so good it's one of those ones so I think I'm gonna have to reread yeah, it yeah. <laughs> it's one of those books that like you you can actually go back to and I read it quite in depth strangely enough you wouldn't think this but before writing my book style or while I was writing that, I really was looking, because I think that so many of the things that we do is really just a series of habits, whether that's your creative practice, whether that's, you know, like the way that you run your household, the way you run your life, like it's just, it's a series of simple, small steps that you've got to do consistently. And we overcomplicate it, but that's it in a nutshell. So yeah, that really informed my book style, strangely enough. I cannot agree more and I think um, applying that to your life it's you can the change can be astronomical and that's what I'm kind of working on now is I think um, having moved coastally I've found well I mean I've always been 
trying to keep fit, but the it has become a lot easier to do that in a smaller town. Um, and I, yeah, it seems to be my driving purpose at the moment because I find so much joy in being fit. Yeah, that's great. Um, what do you What are you listening to? Do you listen to any podcasts or maybe audiobooks, music? What, what do you like? I do intermittently. Yeah. Um, I'm not listening to anything regular at the moment. I've been listening to your podcast a bit. Um, I've been. Uh, it depends when I'm making a show or working really hard. I don't really listen or watch anything. Um, and then the list builds up over a period of like six months. Um, so I, my girlfriend, Celeste, she, uh, contributes to something called sick weekly S I C weekly. It's like a really cool newsletter, um, uh, on this. I'm so, um, I don't know what it's called uh, on, on Substack. Have oh, you yes. heard of Substack? Yeah. I'm like a bit of a dinosaur, um, you know, um, and it's run by this guy called Ben Dites, um, and he sends out like all sorts of really cool articles um, and stuff like that. So that's almost my podcast at the moment. I used to listen to um, good old um, Annabelle Crab and Lee Sales a fair bit, um, and I like um, Dave Proden's WSL because I'm into surfing WSL podcast and I also like um, Lauren Hill and Rasta's Water People podcast um, and I just listen to random episodes that people send me basically they say you know listen to this and I love that knowledge um, but yeah um, Seek Weekly on Substack Celeste has got me into that so I recommend that and then I'm, you know, I'm all about the TV series. So I'm watching um, The Last of Us. I just started that the other day. I haven't watched TV for about six months. Um, but I'm not sure if you've come across it on Binge. I'm, I'm really into post-apocalyptic drama um, in my fantasy brain. Do you know what, actually? So, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I, I, couldn't. I think I'm actually just getting a flashback of when I met you when we were doing the shoot for Style and I was asking you to recommend me TV series because I was really struggling to find anything that I really liked and you recommended to me um, The Morning Show, which I'd been really reluctant to watch because I was like, eh, I don't know, it sounds crap. But... Um, but I watched it. Cheesy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I watched it and being from a like a journalist background, I, I found it so gripping. Certainly the first season. Second season, it's starting to, I felt like it was starting to feel a little bit hackneyed. Like it was, I don't know, it's becoming a little bit melodrama, soap opera kind of thing. First season I thought was amazing. Yeah, it's gratuitous filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. And then. Um, Indulgent. And I think you mentioned yeah. Hacks to me. Did you? watch hacks i don't know if you recommended that to me which i really i really yes enjoyed. i did it is so <laughs> the writing is amazing good. yeah yeah yeah. so thank you for those recommendations so i'll definitely check out this new one um and finally um because i i'm conscious of you know the time and how much of your time i've taken up but i've enjoyed it so much um the final question is what piece of advice would you give to your younger self um relax it all works out in the end 
um, yeah, I, I think I spent a lot of time stressing about what I was going to do in the future. Um, and it's only since having kids um, that you can, I, I don't know, relax. And also life doesn't end when you have kids for all those women out there who are younger. It's just gets better. Yeah. No, yeah. Agree, I was agree completely. If you even choose to have kids and you don't have to have kids, but yeah, like it's just, there seems to be a, um, a deadline for women that, well, it was certainly in my mind, some kind of um, ticking clock, as they say. Um, and I thought basically I had to get everything done in my life before I had kids. And then I realized that um, that was a false deadline and to let that go and you can only achieve more and the older you get the better you get at things and it's a marathon not a sprint very true very true okay well go. thank you so much for your time um you've got a little vi no visitor who's come to visit which is just all part of the mix of being a mother and all the things um but yeah i really appreciate um uh, i've actually had during this interview as well my son walking out the window first time he walked past with a drill the second time this is my six-year-old son i should say second time he walked past with a big branch and a big saw and i'm like uh. <laughs> so country living <laughs> but um, it's all part of the mix but and independence they're building a tree yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah completely so thank you so much Fran I really enjoyed um chatting to you and hearing the whole story getting the backstory Likewise. it's been really great so thanks so much thanks Natalie Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. You're a very talented, multifaceted lady. It's great to know you and be a part of your, you know, your creative happenings. Thank you. So kind. Okay. All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton, and you've been listening to Imprint.